I think we all know L.B. Jeffries would have been insufferable on Next Door had it been around in the 50s. Welcome to Film is Lit, <laughs> the full spoilers podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, he, him, the self-appointed film expert. And my name is Laura, she, her, I'm a self-appointed lit expert. And our theme song was composed by the musician Before Jane. Please look up Before Jane on social media, on Instagram, all those good places. Shout out Before Jane. Today on the pod, we are covering the classic Rear Window, directed by, let me see if I'm getting this right, Alfred Heathcliff. I think I need glasses. Uh, Based on It Had to Be Murder by Cornell Woolrich, originally published in Dime Detective Mystery Magazine in 1942. Again, this is a full spoilers podcast. You have been warned. We're spoiling everything in the movie, everything in the short story. Today is a special episode. It's a guest episode. Finally, We've gone a few episodes into the season without a guest, so mm-hmm. we've been itching for one. Who better to bring back? I think this is his fifth time, I believe. Yeah. He's appeared on Film is Lit more than any other person, uh, besides ourselves. Uh, <laughs> right. Every single one of his episodes is a banger. He appeared on the Akira episode, our episode on The Green Knight. That was a good one. Yeah. That great was a great one. one. Yeah. Well, they're all great. Our episode on Minority Report... And then an episode we did on Akira and Dune with the Super 70 podcast. So shout out that podcast. But without further ado, we're pleased to welcome Ryan Burns. Ryan, say hi. Hello, everybody. And uh, Danny and Laura, always a pleasure. Um, Really appreciate the honor to be a part of uh, what I hope is another wonderful episode on y'all's podcast. So uh, thank you guys so much for having me back. Yeah, thanks for coming on again. Yeah, of course. The bar is high, so yeah. there's a lot of pressure uh, that comes with, you know, we continuously invite you back, but it's just because your episodes produce great numbers, so we want the numbers. Um, <laughs> I, I feel the pressure. Hopefully this this delivers as well, but um, yeah, yeah, I, it's always fun and always a pleasure. Oh, pleasure is all ours. I, I think it will. Ryan, for those listening who haven't listened to one of your previous episodes, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where I'm, you know, speaking with you guys from uh, today, uh, born and raised here, uh, always been a big fan of uh, all different types of literature and film and cinema, um, gravitated more towards movies and film when I was younger, and they hold a very meaningful place uh, in my life, but, you know, really became fascinated with the idea of comparing uh, or comparative media, uh, comparing, you know, the stories that these movies are based off of or adapted from, you know, a while back and just have always really appreciated the artistic elements involved in the adaptations. Uh, but uh, yeah, just, you know, self-proclaimed uh, film and literature buff and uh, really happy to be doing this with you guys. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm I'm glad you said that you've been a huge fan of like different genres and for a long time because now that I think about it when we're rattling off your episodes we've probably spanned more centuries yeah eclectic taste <laughs> yeah you yeah have, eclectic Ryan. taste because like you said I mean Green Knight goes back to like the what 1400s yeah I don't remember when that was published but now we've got the 50s 
we went through Akira that came out in the 80s. We had Minority Report that came out in like 2001, Two, 2002. 2001 or two. Yeah. yeah. So we've definitely covered a lot of different stuff with you. That that Minority Report movie, I just to harken back to it. I was thinking about it the other day. Um, it holds up better than most movies I've seen today. I mean, mm. it, you could mm. pick that film and drop it today and it would look like it would be placed in, you know, the 2020s. It's yeah. it's just an unbelievably well done film and a, and a fantastic adaptation of the Philip K. Dick short story. Um, it's a titular short story. So, um, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I love all of it. I don't have uh, really any discriminatory slant against any type of error or genre when it comes to movies so definitely yeah well if you want to talk about modern freaking rear window yeah you could drop this movie in today absolutely and it it would probably receive more acclaim than it did in the 50s because it was nominated for four oscars best director best writing best sound and best cinematography and didn't win any was not nominated for the acting or best picture which what the hell? Or best uh, set design. So yeah, that's weird. Yeah, you know, it's really cool too. I looked up all the movies that came out in 1954 because we're recording in like mid-January. So we just finished Christmas. And one of my favorite Christmas classics is White Christmas, which came out in October 1954. So I looked up all the rest of the movies that came out in 1954. And none of them are like major hits. Hmm. Like White Christmas and Rear Window, I think are the most enduring, certainly, of the movies that came out in that in that year. So it's like really shocking that this movie didn't garner more acclaim when it came out. Because if I was, and actually I didn't have a chance to do this, but I was going to call my grandma who's still living and ask if she saw this in the theaters. Because if I was living during 1954, this hands down would have been my favorite movie. It's so good. And honestly, every time too, I sit down to rewatch it. I get a little bit scared and I'm like, is it going to be as good as I remember it? Cause I just, I, I have loved this movie since the first time I saw it, like probably a decade ago. But again, every time I sit down, I'm like, ah, is there something that I'm forgetting? Is there something that's not going to punch as hard as it did the last time I saw it? And nope, every time I've rewatched it, it delivers the same yeah. like artistic and like messaging punch that I always expect of it. So what a great movie. Totally agreed. Yeah. So Ryan, tell us a little bit about your journey with both the short story and the film. Yeah. And, and Laura, I agree with you. Um, every time I see it, it gets better and better. It's, it, you know, one of those things where each time, each playthrough, you pick up on things that you didn't see the previous time and it only serves mm-hmm. to kind of sweeten the pot. Um, Mm -hmm. really with, especially with this film, uh, first time I saw it was a little over a year ago. I think it was Christmas 2022, uh, where my dad had mentioned, um, it's one of his favorite movies, if not his favorite movie. And I've been a fan of Hitchcock for a while. I can ashamedly say that I have not seen all of his works. Uh, nor have I seen the ones that I have seen multiple times, at least that I can remember, but always appreciated, you know, what he did and his contributions to the, uh, to the art form. Um, saw a few movies when I was a kid and in high school with my dad, um, uh, Hitchcock movies. And I was shocked that I, you know, basically admitted to him. I was like, I've never seen Rear Window. He <laughs> was floored, jaw hit the, 
hit the floor and and we kind of quickly made plans while everybody was in town to watch it and um, i could not take my eyes off the screen um i was blown away by it it was an instant favorite of mine Mm -hmm. um, after the first time that i saw it and really i didn't watch it again until y'all reached out and said hey we'd like to do an episode on this this film and this story and i was super pumped about it so i've seen it twice total but you know i think i've i've garnered or gleaned you know enough from it to be able to do an effective analysis of the difference between the movie and the short story short story i had not read until you know y'all brought this idea up it's profound what hitchcock was able to do with his yeah. vision of the movie with such a bare bones skeleton mm-hmm. of a story now the story even though i'm describing it that way there's still a ton of meat on the bone and i think hitchcock just picked the perfect points to or perfect i should say gaps to fill in mm-hmm. um, and he filled it in expertly um, credit to the story and to Ulrich for giving such a suspenseful tale in such a condensed yeah. format I, I read it and very rarely am I reading something and it elicits a response emotionally, you know, especially with a thriller. Uh, but yeah. when I got to a certain part towards the end, my heart was racing. I was like, I can't remember the last time that happened when I read something yeah. and I was like, oh my God, I, I was like trying to get all the way through as quickly as I could. Uh, you know, felt like a kid discovering, you know, their favorite story again. Um, yeah, I think for me, what the, putting the two together, the most profound element is what Hitchcock was able to do, filling in the gaps, uh, with what he saw as his vision based off of Warwich's framework. Um, and I don't say that to discredit Warwich's story at all. Um, it's a short story and to call it a framework or a skeleton is not you know, negative at all. It's just Hitchcock took it and, you know, sent it to the moon, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's usually the case with short stories on this podcast. It's not necessarily that they are inherently inferior to the movies that adapt them, but the movies are so much longer and such a bigger production that it feels like these short stories should be longer, but it's a credit to the screenwriter and director of how much they pulled and added. Certainly, I couldn't agree more. My journey starts in 2007. I was in seventh grade, and the movie in question was the Shia LaBeef film Disturbia. <laughs> Have you ever seen Disturbia? I saw it a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> I think I saw that one once. I'm not sure that I... I saw it more than once but i did see it yeah it was all the rage in middle school everyone was talking about it i saw disturbia first liked it a lot and then it wasn't until college in film school when i started being introduced to hitchcock films Mm -hmm. and i was introduced to rope another hitchcock banger uh vertigo widely considered one of the best films ever made next to citizen kane and then in 2020, I believe, Laura and Laura's family finally showed me Rear Window. It was my biggest cinematic blind spot. I think that's exactly what you said. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly why we pulled it up because it was 2020. We couldn't do anything. Right. And so we made our, our way through like a bunch of older movies like The Apartment, 
and some Marx Brothers shows that have been classics in my family. But Rear Window, you said you hadn't seen. Yeah. And I was like, pull out the DVD, y'all. <laughs> you got to watch it. With a lot of classics, it's kind of the thing where like, I know it's good. There's no mystery around it, which funny enough, the mystery within the movie is so compelling. But it was one of those situations where like, I knew when I would watch it, I would love it. But I wanted to challenge myself or, you know, look of new modern films or I just wasn't in that mode. But immediately when we watched it, I'm like, yeah, that was incredibly well made and suspenseful. Ryan, you're talking about the emotion elicited from reading the book. I think with the amount of movies that we watch, a little desensitized here and there, very rarely does a film put me in a mood where I can feel my heart beating, my stomach sinks, you can feel physically your stomach sinking. That scene when LB is watching Lisa across the way in Thorwald's apartment and Thorwald's coming back and there's nothing they can do. They're helpless, incredibly tense. And then of course, the climactic battle between uh, LB and Thorwald when he's lighting off the bulbs. I don't think I've ever seen anything more tense. And I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but I I really genuinely mean that I don't think I've been that scared in my life before. So just thrilling, so modern. I've watched it twice now, you know, once in 2020 and then once 2024, right before we recorded. And yeah, an absolute banger. And this is the first time I read the short story too. As I said before, whenever it comes to a short story, I felt this way with Minority Report too. I'm always wanting more. I think in Philip K. Dick's case, I think there wasn't as much on the page of what I would liked. In this case, it's just I was blown away by how it was adapted and how much more compelling it was. And also how modern it was in the sense of like female characters. Yeah. Who like, and they're the ones who have agency in the film because LB is literally stationary because of his broken leg. So it's so progressive without without it being showy or or pompous, which it, it can seem these days when you're trying to be inclusive. It's not cringeworthy at all. It's very ahead of its time. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's definitely to get into my journey. That's definitely one of the things that I love and value about the movie so much is that was one of the first things that I realized the one of the first times I watched it I was like yeah these female characters are the only people who physically can do anything because they're physically able to they're not in a wheelchair and then I actually also really love how their intelligence is set against the detective friend who at first you're supposed to see as a very that kind of like what we've been talking about with our recent noir series is that like hardline only thinks rationally detective and that actually gets in his way because he's not able to value what the female intellect is able to bring to solving this murder and i like how the movie um, discredits his character because of all of those values that we've seen in all of these hard-nosed detectives that usually like make them the hero actually totally blind him to details that yeah. are key to this mystery. So anyway, that's that's why I have loved this film since the first time I saw it. I don't remember when I first saw this or who introduced it to me. And kind of like Ryan, I've not seen all of Hitchcock's movies and I actually can't say that I love all of his movies. I don't really like Vertigo. 
unfortunately. It's just not one of my favorite movies. Hmm. I just don't... really regretting not getting getting a prenup. I'm kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, yeah, but um, I think honestly the reason is like I I don't find the characters as compelling as in this movie, and so I kind of like mm. hold these movies together and compare them, and I'm like I, they're just like there's not as much to grapple with, I think. But anyway, so I I love this movie. It's a rare case of a movie that I introduced Danny to, and I'm really yeah. glad that you loved it. And when you're talking about the sort of physical emotion that not only the story, which I only read for the first time about a month ago and the movie, like I've seen the movie so many times and I still experience that feeling of like not being able to breathe yeah. every time he's about to be discovered. And I honestly believe that the most terrifying moment in cinematic history is when he calls him from across LB calls Thorwald. Thorwald from across the way. And Thorwald just like looks up and barrels the camera and you realize that he's just seen LB. Like that is terrifying. And I I honestly feel like I forget to breathe during yeah. this whole movie. And then like by the end, like, you know, you have this kind of nice, but not cliche sort of ending. And I finally like breathe a sigh of relief. I'm like, oh God, like even though I know exactly what's going to happen at every beat of this movie, it's everything's okay now because it's yeah. over. Um, so I, again, we watched it the other night. It happened to me again. I adored it. And as Ryan mentioned too, I picked up a whole bunch of new things that I love specifically about Grace Kelly and the nurse. I just adore both of those characters so I'm excited to keep talking about it. There's so much to talk about. Mm -hmm. Where to begin? Ryan, do you have any suggestion of where <laughs> I should begin comparing the story in the movie? It might be cherry picking, but the most noticeable, I mean, right off the bat, um, there's so much expose that Hitchcock provides mm. at the very beginning of the film because the story starts off kind of right in the middle of the voyeurism that LB mm. is kind of starting to engage, engage in, excuse me. You know, if you just take, again, the, the short story and go from there, there's, there's not a lot that is provided for the reader uh, to uh, really flesh out LB's character. We don't, you know, really throughout the mm. whole story, learn too much about who he is what he's about um and there's a big difference in and when we find out you know why he's in a in a seat or a chair um or a wheelchair mm -hmm. so the biggest you know difference right off the bat is all the scene setting and expose that hitchcock provides to kind of give us the feel of of what's going on where we are details about lb and kind of you know, his past, who he is, what he's like. And he really just hammers that so well and, and perfected setting the stage uh, for, for the rest of the, the film. And really, I mean, to me, it was basically, we're just kind of, as a reader, dropped right into that story as he's starting to look out the window and kind of observe his world or the worlds of uh, the other people that are kind of across the way in the, across the quad um, that he can see. Uh, and and there's 
not a lot to go off of. So I think, you know, he did a wonderful job of, of building that world for us before the two stories kind of align, you know, at that starting point about 20, 25 minutes in almost. So, which is a substantial part because it's almost a quarter of the film before we kind of get into where Warwich starts essentially. Yeah, honestly, I remember in the beginning of the story, LB describes what he's seeing as if he's looking at a dollhouse with this back sort of sliced off. Mm. And that is exactly how Alfred Hitchcock sets up the movie in the beginning. Like he basically goes window to window and introduces us into these little vignettes And what I think is really sort of visually interesting about the storytelling too is how much LB's perspective and interest changes about each little vignette as the story goes on. For example, in the beginning, like his nurse is giving him a hard time about not wanting to get married to the beautiful woman that he's dating currently. And so he's really interested in this like very provocative dancer, ballet dancer across the way. But as we see the storyline move forward, he gets more and more intellectually interested in the woman that he's dating, played by Grace Kelly, Liza or Lisa, I think is her character's name. And he gets less and less interested in the ballet dancer. And we literally get like eye rolls when someone points out the ballet dancer's window, or he'll kind of like scan past her window instead of lingering on her window for a little longer. And like, all of that is visual storytelling. We don't hear LB say like, oh, I'm less interested in this person now because there's been a murder next door. Like all of that is brilliantly done visually. Yeah. That the story, the short story just like couldn't really do the same in the same way because it's not a visual medium. Right. But yeah, that opening shot is great. We, we also get introduced to the fact that it's a really hot summer because mm-hmm. like LB is napping and he's got like a, drop of sweat kind of going down a bead of sweat going down his forehead and, and then the camera sleeping outside on the... yeah just all like brilliant details to introduce us to like it's hot you know lb's uncomfortable his like cast is itchy because he's sweaty he's got nothing else to do all of these things it just yeah. like creates this like stagnation of august which is what also when the movie came out in 1954 it's just this like stagnant sticky hot boring summer those first three minutes textbook showing not telling and that's the only case where there's score in the film everything else is diegetic noise so happens within the film itself and yeah we learn the whole setup of the neighborhood in manhattan we we learn later that it's in manhattan greenwich village and we only find that out because of us like a the hint of like a cover of a magazine or something. It says like the end of Manhattan or something. It's just, oh, brilliant. Yeah. So in those three minutes, we learn the whole layout. We learn that it's summer. We know the vantage point. We know his profession. A lesser film would have had LB say like, I'm a photographer and I can't shoot. I'm at (laughs) home. Oh, this is, but you know, it's very well told. Once the setup is complete again, two minutes, we're just flown right into it. And it always feels real despite uh, the actual set being a set. This was shot entirely in Paramount Studios, the biggest set ever in 1954. And fun fact, the courtyard was actually in the basement 
of the studio. So LV's apartment was street level and they knocked the floor down to make it more cavernous so they could put uh, put that perspective. It, it's really cool brilliant. stuff. Yeah, really brilliant stuff. You see LB's relationship with Lisa change over the course of the film. Still a great movie. That's This is the one and only thing that made me laugh both viewings is LB's resistance to marry grace kelly grace kelly an <laughs> angel for come down from the heaven it i mean if it was any other person it's just it just seems so funny to so, w- what was the what was the dialogue um she's too perfect it, yeah yeah she's too perfect too talented too beautiful she's too sophisticated Okay, but coming from... Do someone... everything but what I want. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Stella's like, um, is um, what you want something you can discuss? <laughs> a great, well, a great dialogue. A great but I, I, I know you're probably going to uh, checkmate me with your analysis. I just think it's funny that... I mean, it, have two people ever looked hotter on screen? Still... <laughs> It, it, it's funny for LB to be in any way resistant to Grace Kelly. Sure. I mean, sure. Um, I also wanted to just quickly point out that we don't really have a love interest or the nurse character in the short story. Right. We have a relatively reductionist, racist view of like a manservant, quote unquote, that's helping LB through his yeah. recovery. It's not great. It's not great. Yeah. It, he's really rude to the guy. Like there's... It's just a little, it's really dated, I guess. It's the most dated part of this short story. Well, you know why it's rude? It's because in the film, Lisa offers to go do the tasks for LB. But in the short story, uh, LB, oh, is it LB? What's his name in the short story? Our protagonist in the short story is demanding that Sam go and uh even just the name yeah yeah and scope out uh thorwald's apartment so but yeah so we with the movie we get the introduction of the nurse and lisa's character so what i like about this is that again a brilliant bit of visual storytelling is that we find out that lb is a photographer he travels all around the world he's got knickknacks from every culture assumingly that he's gone and photographed he's even got a photograph on the wall that's framed that's like a crashing race car coming right at him so i think it's really believable that because she's from the society set in manhattan all that he sees is this like barbie yeah and i don't i think he loves her but like i do understand the emotional like resistance Mm. to saying you can't and i think a lot of the the thing that i value about that too is that it demonstrates that he's bought into the 1950s and beyond and in the past that mindset that like pretty women are not intellectual they can't really be adventurous they belong in the box that society has put over them And so like his mind is widened, not just because he comes around to it, quote unquote, but because she understands why he's being resistant to her. And she like, she's like, look at all the things that I can do. Like, you're not giving me credit for the fact that I can 
pack an overnight bag in my purse and Whoa, look at this right yeah. and like <laughs> climb up a fire escape and break into some guy's apartment by like basically leaping between the fire escape and an open window and I can get myself out of a really dangerous situation with a guy that might want to kill me. Like all of those things, she puts herself in those positions to show him like, you've underestimated me. Mm. Don't you dare do that. Like I am absolutely every bit as worthy of you as you think you, you know, we aren't. Yeah. The other thing that I love about the final shot of the movie is that it really demonstrates what a complex character she is because she's reading like a travel magazine but then when she sees that LB has fallen asleep, she picks up Bazaar, you know, and she's reading the fashion magazine. So I love yeah. that she's like a really complex character. And she's saying like, you can be really adventurous and also really value fashion. Like those yeah. are two things that I can embody and I am a full woman because of it. So anyway, that's a long rant, but I really value their relationship because of the development it goes on. Oh, yeah. Through the course of the movie. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more on the development. It's the thing of beauty, both in the writing, but also the looks that Jimmy Stewart gives Grace Kelly throughout the film. Yeah. It's like, man, oh, man, that you can't really, you can't fake that. Yeah. Like, that's that's real love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. In, in several ways, Lisa shows Jimmy Stewart's character that not only can she take risk or be adventurous or, you know, I guess in a way wild, she is even magnitudes more so than he is. I mean, he's done all these photography jobs and, and various parts of the world that are, you know, different cultures. They're probably, you know, foreign, have a great deal of uh, sense of adventure to him. And he's kind of thinking like, I'm this, rough and rugged photographer. Um, I live this kind of fast lifestyle in this regard. I got a sense of like, what would she want to do with a guy like me? Oh, or at least in a way he's acknowledging like this disparity uh, between the two of them. And she's basically saying, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too. I mean, I'm, I'm like you in a lot of ways and in a lot of ways, even, you know, <laughs> pardon me, but mm -hmm. way more ballsy than you are. I mean, she scales yeah. a building, uh, <laughs> crosses a courtyard. I mean, she's, she's all in once that, that pivotal scene in the movie where she's kind of contesting what his thoughts are and whether Thorwald did murder his wife. And then she gets a piece of evidence standing right there next to LB. And she's like, okay. And then a, on a hairpin turn, she's like, I'm all in. Let's start from yeah. the beginning, I think is what she says. And then mm -hmm. she's she's basically she kind of runs the show in terms of, in terms of uh, being the the vehicle through which you know he's able to kind of push this whole mystery sol solving of the mystery further. She's a very 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 strong character, and she kind of flips on a on a dime really. I mean I think you know you're presented with this uh, model esque beautiful woman, and you kind of for a second there think okay this is the you know, maybe a stereotypical role, um, maybe for the time. And then instantly after she gets invested in the, in the mystery, she's a totally different character. And it's really cool to see that. I think Stella's character is tremendously underrated. And, and yeah. one thing that I love that Hitchcock did was he took the role of Sam as a character and, and split it into two parts. Yeah. Um, and that was 
you know, serving the story from a cinematic perspective and, and his attempt to kind of maybe flesh out the world a little bit more, but it was a brilliant move to split Sam into two different vehicles there between Stella and Lisa. Um, and you basically have kind of Stella being the caretaker, which Sam is, and then Lisa's doing all the action there. And actually they both are, I mean, Stella's as in on it as Lisa is. And mm-hmm. I think she's underrated because of the comedic aspect that Stella provides, uh, mm-hmm. basically with almost everything that she says and in the way she delivers kind of some of the things that she says to LB, there's that scene where, you know, she starts pontificating on, on, well, if he were to, you know, dismember her body, you know, how would he do it? And then she's sitting there and she's just made him breakfast and she's eating, yeah. you know, her meal. <laughs> and yeah. she goes, well, what about the bathtub? That would be the only place, you know, that he could <laughs> drain away all the blood and LB's like about to take a bite and you can see like his stomach turn. And so <laughs> yeah. that's a really good point. Kind of long windedly, Laura, back to your initial uh, point about Lisa's character and, you know, kind of strong feminine, uh, characters and agency there is that <laughs> LB is this is his thing that he's pushing forward but Stella's got the stomach for it you know mm. and, and mm-hmm. it's and and she's the one digging up the you know flower beds uh, you know at yeah. the end of the movie too so yeah I, I agree you know wholeheartedly with both y'all it's uh, really interesting that that Hitchcock divided Sam into those two characters and did it so well yeah, I think too, like rarely is it a good idea to multiply characters in a story rather mm-hmm. than condensing because we see that a lot in movies where we'll just condense a bunch of characters that we don't have time to get to know where maybe a book has time to flesh people out. And I think that really gets us away from like the the classic noir detective that I think the story kind of leans on a little bit more, which is, I think... I don't know, not necessarily uninteresting, but it's certainly more, it plays with the trope of the time of that hard-boiled detective. And I also like, as we've been saying, that really Stella and Lisa help solve the mystery. Whereas in the short story, it's really just LB telling Sam, like, go over and kind of do these menial sort of detective tasks, but I'm going to put it all together with my detective friend. And the other thing that I, I think the only thing I really didn't like about the short story was how he figured out that it actually had been a murder and where the wife's body was, Mm -hmm. because it seemed like very, it was, it was telegraphed really early that there was something about the floor and he kept kind of going over in his mind, like something's kind of weird and so you could tell that there had to do it had to do with something about the construction. But then the the reveal is just that the floor is a little bit higher than the apartment above. And so he had to have like placed his wife's body in sort of a subfloor before they poured new concrete over the top. And so that was like it was a little bit unbelievable, I would say. And it's a little it's a little simple and it was kind of a letdown based on what I already knew about the movie. So what the movie does is like it it gathers all of these people who are able to use their minds together. They mm-hmm. lean on one another to solve this mystery. And then I think it's just a little more believable that he put her body into the trunk 
and ship the trunk away. I just find that a more believable and interesting sort of reveal rather than, oh, like the floor was a little, he just noticed that like the guy's head was six inches above the person above him. That was a little unbelievable for me in the story. Sure. And it's great to see them, the detective gang, the mystery squad, solve it over the course of the film to go from suspicion to investigation to he definitely did it. And I mean, what's compelling is Doyle, his friend, does make a good case of why he's being nosy and mm-hmm. is overreaching here. It's it's not like he's an idiot. Sure, he's a little pompous. But and sexist, yeah. You're right. But um, the first time I saw it, I was under the impression that this was a horror film where James Stewart witnesses a murder. Mm. But I liked how it was more of a thriller where they try to prove a murder happened whilst living across the way from the murder. And again, talking about Stella, played by the wonderful Thelma Ritter. Shout out Thelma. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think the linchpin is the ring, which when Lisa or Lisa, I think think James Stewart says Lisa, but it's Lisa. Because it's with an S. Who knows? Um, But yeah, he asks. And of course, a dumb man wouldn't know if it was smart to leave a wedding ring behind. But Stella says... If you would want my wedding ring, you would have to chop my finger off. Yeah. So another funny line, but it, it is, it's great to see the little detective squad um, at work, whereas it's just one person in the short story. Well, that's what I love about the final and most important clue that really brings Grace Kelly and James Stewart to like completely disregard all of the, like you said, understandable evidence against the fact that there's been a murder Like it's the purse and it's the wedding ring and the jewelry where they're like, Grace Kelly is like, I am telling you, no woman would leave her favorite purse behind. And like, that is such a thing that's true, but doesn't really feel sexist. Like I would say anybody who has like a favorite purse, like let's not, we can just like delegate it to anybody who has like a favorite bag or purse. Like for me, that's so true. And I love that that's the key piece of evidence where they're like, we're all in like this lady's dead. She would not have left her favorite purse. There's no way. And her wedding ring and her jewelry. And that's exactly true. I would never like, we were just talking about how all of us wear a silicone ring a lot because we value our other rings or they get uncomfortable sometimes when we wear our real rings. And like, there's not a time I've ever left our apartment or condo without my real rings around my neck. I just wear them on a chain because I'm like, whatever happens to me, like the rings are coming with me, right? Like if, (laughs) if someone breaks into our condo, like those rings will not be there to be stolen. Like I completely identify with that idea of not leaving your purse or your jewelry behind. Mm -hmm. To give credit to Woolrich, it is also fun, even though I preferred the whole Scooby gang talking Mm -hmm. over the murder. It is fun to see LB's inner thoughts at work, making out a string of points that prove the murder. And it's like, if one is true, then two has to be true. So if she left for a vacation or to get better because she was sick, then why wouldn't Thorwall go back into the bedroom? Like, because the couch isn't as comfy. So that was just a different angle than 
the short story because uh, then the movie because the movie had what really tips LB off in the movie that's not in the book is uh, that Thorwald goes out three times in the middle of the night with his suitcase. Whereas I think in the short story, what what tips him off is that his blinds are are down and everyone else's aren't. So it, just a difference there. Mm-hmm. The short story is good. It's just it's just so much more fulfilling in the movie. Yeah, with the characters. Yeah, the, no, the writing is still extremely gripping. Like the first, I'll just read the first few lines here because I was like, "Damn!" Like that's <laughs> that's the way to open a short story. It opens with, I didn't know their names. I had never heard their voices. I didn't even know them by sight, strictly speaking, for their faces were too small to fill in with identifiable features at this distance. Yet I could have constructed a timetable of their comings and goings, their daily habits and activities. They were the rear window dwellers around me. Like, What an introduction. That's an incredible introduction right there. That tells you all you need to know. Do you know if Woolrich has written anything else? Did you do any recon he, on him? Yeah, he wrote a few short stories. This is certainly his most well-known and successful. Hmm. But he did a lot of short stories. One of them is kind of funny because it relates to another book that we'll be covering soon. It's called Marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> and it's I read the synopsis quickly. It's about a man whose wife leaves him. And he's so distraught that he smokes marijuana and it sends him on a murder spree throughout the city of Manhattan. (laughs) Sounds like marijuana. (laughs) It's so silly. And it's also so 1950s. And like I said, it connects with LA confidential, which is what we're reading for or just covered um, depending on when we release these episodes, but we just read LA confidential and in a, lot of ways the book feels very dated because what their their big case is about marijuana and some porn magazines yeah (laughs) which is like nowadays it's pretty silly to think about but that's his other really major short story other than that he's not a hugely well-known guy and dime magazine was just a the editorial of mystery short stories. Yeah, it wasn't a super successful magazine. I'd be really interested to know how Alfred Hitchcock was introduced to the story because the magazine was pulpy and it only ran from 1932 to 1950, which also really overlaps with like the noir detective yeah. explosion, I would say, of the genre. So he wasn't, I don't really know how Alfred Hitchcock was introduced to this piece. Yeah. The script was adapted by John Michael Hayes, and I think he was an agent of Paramount Studios, just looking for something. And in the 50s, this is when Hitchcock was cooking. He was releasing two to three movies a year. He had just shot Dial M for Murder, Mm. which uh, also with Mm -hmm. Grace Kelly. He basically went from that to this. It was the biggest set ever built in uh, film history for Paramount and just for all studios. And they had four different lighting setups, but you know, one for each time of day, morning, midday, sunset, and night. Um, according to IMDb trivia, every single light in Paramount Studios was brought over to 
Studio 16 where they're shooting this for this That's set. So cool. So Paramount <laughs> Studios had no lights to shoot other films. Can you uh, imagine how hot the set had to have been? Oh, it, especially in the, in the 50s. The, but no, yeah, exactly. Like the beads of Oof. sweat probably weren't like sprayed on them from with Evian, right? Like it was probably really, <laughs> really fucking hot. Yeah. I, I bet it was miserable. Yeah. I bet all shoots in the 50s were miserable because no precautions at yeah. all, both safety and, and health. Uh, but yeah, I think Hitchcock was in his prime here. He still had a few more bangers left in him. North by Northwest hadn't come out yet. But this is just a case of a director who was a well-oiled machine. His whole production was a well-oiled machine. And apparently the relationship between him and James Stewart was that a very minimal dialogue between the two. They had an understanding. And that was also Hitchcock's reputation was he he didn't really direct actors. The quote is he hired actors who knew what to do when the camera started rolling. So he expected good performances. And if and if it wasn't up to his standards, it wasn't a conversation. It was like they were out and mm -hmm. uh, new people were in. But very rarely <laughs> would that happen since was a meticulous master of, of control. I think the modern day example is David Fincher. You hear story after story of David Fincher, a hundred takes, crews being there over hours. And uh, funny, we just watched uh, The Killer, the latest film from him. And the beginning of The Killer is very similar to Rear Window, where he, Michael Fassbender's character is scoping out a hit and is basically has to look out a window, a rear window for five days. And he's so bored because that's all he can do. And like the production of Rear Window, everything in The Killer, that set was a set. They didn't actually shoot in Paris, or at least that scene. It was all constructed because of control. So that's my little my little diatribe about, about Hitchcock. A good director, hot take. We also uh, get his classic cameo in oh, yeah. the songwriter's apartment which is kind of cool he's just sort of cleaning maybe he's in like a second of film. resetting the clock resetting the clock yeah there we go <laughs> but anyway just a little fun fact because he's in all of his films always great to see freddie mm. in there <laughs> that was such a cool cameo too i remember the first time i saw it with my dad you know he kind of was like you know Hitchcock has a cameo in each of his films. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. And he goes, well, let's see if you can spot it. And mm -hmm. as soon as he came on screen, I was like, there he is. I mean, it yeah. was funny because it's such, it, he wasn't like in a crowd of people. Uh, yeah. He was very forward. Hitchcock was in making sure that like the audience could easily find him. And it's, it's mm -hmm. just kind of like a trademark uh, or a stamp on his films. Um, you know, that he, as a, a tradition that he's carried out uh, or, or carried out through his movies. But it's so funny because you're right. He's on screen for a few seconds, but he faces, you know, the, <laughs> the songwriter is, is staged in front of Hitchcock's character. So when he faces to address the songwriter, he's looking right at the audience and yeah. it's very apparent and present and, and there's no, you know, shrouding of, of this cameo at all of him. I mean, yeah. really only two people in the room. 
No, it's so funny because rarely do you have someone who's so recognizable by profile. But honestly, even if you just saw his neck down, mm -hmm. Alfred Hitchcock's body shape and profile is very recognizable, which is really funny. He has that little tubby, you know. Um, he's, he's shaped like a head of garlic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, didn't, that, um, didn't that become like one of his kind of trademarks too. I remember when I was a kid watching some of his movies and seeing the side profile silhouette of either yeah. his face or his body. And it was like, oh, this is a Hitchcock film or right, something. Exactly. I, I can't remember if it was like at the beginning of the movies or the films or if it just was something that was attributed to him later. Uh, but yeah. I remember I remember that as a kid. Yeah. It's interesting too that he pops up in the songwriter's apartment because I want to talk about that a little bit. So with the music, as you said, the diegetic versus non-diegetic music, I honestly think that the score for this film is number one, it's interesting. Number two, it feels like Alfred Hitchcock is such a good director that he's just like showing off with the fact that he could score a film using a character within the, his movie. Yeah. Like who can do that in a natural way where it doesn't feel awkward or forced? Like it's just in the background enough that it's not distracting, mm -hmm. but it gives one of the vignettes more weight because it becomes part of the story. And he even almost scores the lives of the people around him. So for example, like the ballet dancer can hear it. So she's dancing to his score. And then the very depressed single woman in the, in the first floor mm -hmm. apartment, Miss Lonely Hearts, exactly as Stella dubs her, is kind of actually inspired not to commit suicide because she's so moved by the beauty of the songwriter's music. And then there's a party that the songwriter throws because assumably he sold the song or his song was picked up for a movie, which would have been very meta also. Yeah. But there's such a beauty. And especially during this time, because I recently read this book called the songs of Hollywood, where it talks about how movies from the silent era to new talkies to Broadway films that were adapted from a Broadway musical script, how, you know, songs have become integrated and sort of something that we don't question in movies. But during the 50s and 60s, there was a huge transition where people didn't really know how to introduce music into movies without it being a musical or without someone actually like singing, mm. being sort of compelled to sing right. for a certain reason. For example, like it was a backstager, like they were putting on a musical or a some type of show where they had to practice or rehearse or like even for example, White Christmas yeah. is considered a backstager. Mm -hmm. It came out in the same year, but filmmakers at this time weren't just throwing in popular songs like we have today. For example, I'm we just watched Saltburn and Murder on the Dance Floor is blowing up as a song <laughs> uh, because it, it closes that movie. But like that wasn't a thing. Like directors had to really understand and like come to and like arrive at a new period of how to integrate music into movies. And, and the fifties and sixties were such an interesting transition period. So for Alfred Hitchcock to say like, I want to score my movie, but I want it to come from one of the vignettes that I'm talking about. 
is just, again, it's like he's just showing off with how he understands movies as media. It's just brilliant. Well, he was decades ahead in the film industry of forming a distinct POV. Mm. All that diegetic sound, it's great, but it also serves to force you, the viewer, into being in LB's position, which is kind of rare for a whole film to take place from one perspective the entire time, save for a few shots. I think once the dog dies, we get a quick medium shot of Miss Lonely Hearts who comes out like out of nowhere just it's like thrown into the film you're like whoa and then of course at the end when he falls out of the apartment then you get a more courtyard view but yeah sometimes a good bombastic score works to highlight the parts of the film where you know you're supposed to feel certain emotion but to just have the piano player music going on in that scene where uh, LB is watching Lisa scout Thorwald's apartment and then the Thorwald comes in and then it grabs her. To just have that is genius. It's so tense. It adds to have no score highlighting how you should feel and to just to be put in that position, right? Because you're not, the camera isn't inside Thorwald's apartment. It's still in LB's apartment. So you're helpless alongside with LB and Stella of watching you know, whatever happens. And again, even if you know she doesn't die, it's still so tense because of that music choice. And that that brings up another aspect of the film that I thought was super uh, powerful and interesting. Um, you know, perspective is one way that the story and the film differ. Uh, mm. Warwich's story is first person told through LB and, and obviously Hitchcock's film is third person but it's the way that the film is shot is done so well because it it's a third person narrative but it it feels first person because if you think the way i thought about it was that we take a movie screen or a tv it's a rectangle it's a you know a square of sorts or it's a window. And so, mm-hmm. you know, LB's sitting there looking at this world through a pane of glass and we are too. Um, I yeah. think that's one of the things that really drives that tension at the end of the movie when uh, we see Lisa being accosted by uh, Thorwald. It was so, such a, I don't know. I mean, y'all probably know what the device is uh, for something in cinema that you know, is that, um, I'm, I'm unsure what it would be called, but you know, whatever it is that we're basically kind of framing, we, we have LB's experience essentially because we're viewing this through our own window of sorts, uh, you know, through the silver screen or the, or the TV or the monitor that we're, we're looking or viewing the movie through. So it, it puts us in LB's seat almost just as much as LB is even though, you know, there's that obviously subconscious acknowledgement that we're a party viewing this, we're not LB, but in those moments of tension, you forget that. And I felt, you know, the first time I watched it and the most recent time I watched it, I was, I was forgetting that I, I kind of wasn't, uh, wasn't there. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. it, it just, it just makes that, that, uh, it gives so much more magnitude to the, 
the stress and the emotion of the situation, I, I guess in that way, it's just, uh, again, I don't know what the device is called, but very powerful, especially because of the way that the, the story set up uh, just with uh, an invalid, essentially uh, right. powerless. And, you know, all he's the only way he can access the world currently is, is through a box. Yeah. I, I don't know that there's necessarily a phrase to describe that specific thing, but I definitely can understand if someone were to give a stack of stories to Alfred Hitchcock and said, like, choose one to develop and direct, how he could see exactly what you're describing as like, I can utilize the limitations of a screen to actually in reinforce right. how helpless the characters feel. Right behind a window where you really can't do anything. I also just looked at the story and the main character's name is Hal Jeffries. Hal. Hal, yeah. So I forgot that and I just found it in the story. But but yeah, to your point, That's what it is. I, I love how Alfred Hitchcock would be really intrigued by the limitations of the screen actually bringing a strength to his storytelling. Yes. And also something we haven't talked about yet, is the way that Alfred Hitchcock uses reflections and how this movie is perfectly situated or the story is perfectly situated to exploit the window panes and the camera lens and mirrors and every single reflective surface that he could find he used even even there's a, a metal carrying case that the caterer brings their food in that's reflective. All of that stuff is brilliant. Glasses, picture frames, like all of these reflective things are he uses really well to tell the story of like remo being removed from the actual yeah. action. But it's brilliant because he's removed from the action, but the literal telephoto lens he's using those lenses are designed to take something very far away and compress the picture as if you're standing right there when what you're looking at is actually far away and all the elements are squished. So it all serves to enforce the POV. I think Hitchcock was such a master storyteller that he could recognize that this is the perfect story to bring about a voyeuristic yeah. character because... It makes sense since he's a photographer to have that lens. So the real camera they used was a telephoto lens, just like the one LV had. Of course, it wasn't a regular film stock camera. It was one of those big, huge film cameras that made a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. That being said, it's the same same lens that LV was using. So it it's so brilliant. It's like a cheat code. It makes sense for you to see what LV is seeing because that's the literal camera they're using to shoot everything. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah. And the ref the shots of the reflection of LB pointing his camera and you see the reflection of Thorwald's apartment back on to the lens. Yeah. Iconic, instantly iconic. So many iconic shots from this film, but that's probably the most iconic, if not one of the most iconic shots from the 50s, certainly. Yeah. So just to clarify, so the, the telephoto lens that's on his camera was actually the same lens that was on the camera that was shot, that was used to shoot the film? Uh, yes. And the, wow. so 
yeah, the, you know, of course, as I said, you know, film in those days, which the celluloid that they used in the 50s sadly does not exist anymore and cannot be recreated, actually. The mechanism to burn the celluloid cells to create that picture, that was different from what he had uh, on LB's camera in the film, but the, the lenses were real. And I think it was, what was it, like a 400 millimeter, something absolutely insane. I don't know if that means anything to anyone, but for, but usually the millimeters, like you shoot in film, are like 35, 45, 50, but this is like 400. It's so, the magnitude was intense and the apartment set was all to scale. So it was a real, it was like a real living area. Apparently some units actually had running water. I'm not sure if that's true or if that's just IMDb just you know, making stuff up, but <laughs> apparently, you know, some of the actors kind of lived in these apartments like like it was their trailers. Very like cool. especially the ballerina dancer, which we should talk about her if we have anything to say about her. She <laughs> this character is not in the short story at all. Nope. And my Ms. favorite so Yes. Torso, yeah. And my favorite line of the film happens at the end when her boyfriend, presumably Oh, I think it's like her husband. Her husband? Yeah. Uh, comes home and says, wow, I'm so hungry from the army. And it got just a bit <laughs> kind of a dopey statement to end the film on. But it was nice to see her find love at the end or to have Well, love. yeah. Yeah. The joke is that she's uh, floozy, I suppose. But she never actually, you know, sleeps with anyone or cheats, I guess, on her partner She's actually just like entertaining people. And that's just an assumption that not only she's a working LB, woman. Right. Yeah. Like not only LB made that assumption, but we made that assumption. Exactly. Right. But her dancing is quite risque. My goodness. For 1954. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like people must have been her like wardrobe blushing. In that the was porn. <laughs> that was porn in 1954. Right. I don't mean to be crass, but let's just call it how it is. No, they're all just such endearing vignettes though everybody across the way like really does like you have sort of a an, an emotional investment in all those characters and especially when the dog dies and the tenant who kind of screams is a little bit dr melodramatic but i mean you know she just lost her dog like right. someone just killed her dog i'd and be i'd be melodramatic it's <laughs> devastating yeah. when that little dog is like you know lifted in the cute little basket that she uses to let her dog out like that's devastating yeah so it really i think it really speaks to the way that again none of that is in the really isn't in the novella short story right but alfred hitchcock had this way of just and the screenwriter i should say also the yeah. writer had just an incredible way of like giving that emotional investment into these people that you don't really need to know about but there's even like a sculptor that's kind of cool there's like a woman who like sunbathes and is sculpting this you know, piece called hunger or whatever across the way. Like, oh, I'm invested. <laughs> yeah. That scene leads into one of what I think is one of the most sinister shots in any movie that I've seen. Yeah. That's go ahead. It, that it's oh, yes. Oh man, I know exactly. Go ahead. It, it might be my favorite shot of the movie, honestly. If there's any doubt uh, that a viewer has to Thorwall's guilt or not by the time you hit that scene you're you're like all right 
all that doubt has just been decimated. And it's that yeah. shot where L.B. Jeffries says, you know, everybody came to their balconies when they heard her scream and, and, and when they found out about the dog, but there was one person that didn't. And then it just cuts. I don't think it pans. I think it just cuts over to that shot of Thorwald's apartment. It's completely dark. And all you see is just the ember of a cigar or a cigarette, you know, lighting up and then going down with each puff that he's taking. And that's all you can see. And it was, I I forgot about it from the first time I saw it. I saw it again, had the same reaction to it. That is nothing short of just sinister. Yeah. Uh, Terrifying. And, yeah. you know, it, d- it didn't involve any, you know, screams, any violence, any, anything grotesque or gore. It was just terror conveyed through a very simple shot. So perfect. Just a perfect shot. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> and actually that I want to give, like you were doing earlier, I want to give Cornell Woolrich some credit because he does have that moment too, where he's like, everyone but that one tenant came to the window. So that was in the original novella. And you just can't put that visualization in print though. Like yeah. that that burning of the, his cigar or cigarette. Yeah, it's just the most sinister moment. And matched later on when Thorwall calls LB which is, this is also in the short story when he finally suspects that it's the apartment across the way who has seen him. He calls him and if LB or Hal, of course, answer it thinking it's Doyle. Right. Oh, hello. Hello. It hangs up. So it was confirmed in Thorwall's case that, yep, that's the same guy who called me earlier saying that he knows, uh, he knows. And so that sinister shot is when, he finally barges into LB and or Hal's place and is only in silhouette. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to light a scene as if there's no light. It's, it's mm. very difficult to do that. But they get a perfect silhouette of both men in the film and they just stand there. And in LB's case, he's sitting and you just sit with the silence and the silence is deafening. The visual is haunting preceded by the, the light gag, which there's again, no music. So tense and albeit a little bit silly, still believable that mm-hmm. that would, that would buy him some time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. No. And I also think that the, the terror is really mirrored in the fact that like when we only get that cigar shot, we also kind of know that he's been looking out his window just as much. We just haven't really thought about it because we're not in his POV. Mm. So, and actually that's one of the stronger points in the short story as well, where one of the things that cements in Hal's mind that he, that Thorwald is guilty is like, he kind of comes out the window and takes like a pan of the, apartment across the way and he's like that's not the look of someone who's just bored that's the look of someone who's trying to figure out if someone's been watching yeah and so it kind of in this short story it flips in your mind a little earlier and you're like oh yeah like i i also can see how that's a very different look and i love how if you think about it like he's sitting in the dark probably looking at lb as well you just don't think about it until that shot and to this to the story to piggyback off that there's an, i think 
it's followed up by a statement about there's one point where Thorwald is walking from one end of his apartment to exit and Hal in the story mentions he he talks about several times delayed action or or delayed response um and basically like uh the disparity between subconscious and conscious i think for at least what his mind is going through when he's trying to process all these events and he mentions something about when thorwall is passing through the apartment and he looks out the window his window real quick but but something registers with hal like as he's passing he kind of looks he's i think he says like he shot out the he said it in a way as if he was firing like a projectile through the glass. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said he kind of snapped a, sh- uh, a glance off real quick as he was passing, you know, one of the barriers uh, mm-hmm. or the walls between the windows and that registered with Hal. Uh, and so that's to your point about he's Thorwell has been more aware of the situation than I think the reader or the viewer maybe wants to admit um, mm. at different points of the, of the, of the story or the, or the, or the movie. It's something I didn't, I didn't really register, uh, my own version of delayed action or delayed response there, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that I really love too, is that it's a smart murderer. Like it, he's not a dumb guy and I'm always more intrigued by complex villains. I, you know, something else that Alfred Hitchcock uses very well in terms of like a limitation was there's no way he could have shown how or when or what really happened when Thurwald actually murders his wife. Like we don't even really know if he stabbed her. He probably did, but we only really know that the knife was used to dismember her. So she would fit into the trunk, but we don't get any of those details. And as we've kind of talked about, on plenty of our episodes, a lot of times the scarier things are the things that are left off screen. So our minds are left to fill in that gap and like what really happened behind those blinds when they were drawn. And again, this guy's a smart guy. Like honestly, if Hal or LB had not, let's say he was on a photography trip or some kind of mission or whatever, like if he hadn't been paying attention, he probably would have gotten away with it because he was like, I think at the end of the movie, the detective is like, he's used up five and a half of six weeks of his lease. So he's about to move out. So he's a smart guy. Like he, he spent the time to set up his place. He had, he was already having an affair. So he clearly kind of had a co-conspirator in this that helped him pull off the fact that his wife was alive later than she really was. Like he's a smart guy. And I like the fact, like we talked about earlier, that the detective has really solid evidence that he looked into it and she's fine. Like she's just kind of off on a farm. Yeah, the trunk was picked up. Right. So I like I really like the fact that we are in this chess game and it's not so obvious that this guy's guilty. He's a smart murderer. <laughs> yeah. Too bad he lived across the street from right. a photographer. <laughs> a smart one at that too, yeah. It's smart characters all around that yeah. give... There's nothing better than constructive conversations where you, you go point by point and prove it to be true or, yeah. or false. I love that type of stuff. Yeah, And the short story even goes into more detail how 
suggests that Thorwall had been slowly poisoning mm. his wife. That's why she was bedridden. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was ever talked about in the film at all, but that also makes sense. Could too. be. We don't know. Yeah. That's the thing. Like he totally could have been. That's a really good point. The only thing I can think of that may reference that is there's one scene where Thorwall's in like the living room, his wife is in the bedroom, the blinds are all open. And it's that one scene where LB Jeffries is looking into that, you know, uh, Thorwall's apartment. And he sees, he doesn't hear it. I don't think we hear it, but he views, you know, Thorwell's reaction to being beckoned or called. Uh, And he goes back into the bedroom and his wife is, I I couldn't, I couldn't decide how I, I viewed it. It, it, At first it was like, she was kind of delirious or maybe hysteria from a fever or something because we were obviously it's been established that she's ill or sick and she's you know bedridden for the entirety of her appearance on screen but he goes back in to see what the deal is and she's you know on the bed laughing i think she maybe even points to him or something like that and then he gets frustrated and it was almost like that could be a point where because in the story i think he references Dan, just like you were saying, he may have been poisoning her and she may have become aware of it and caught him in the act. I think that's just one point where that might have been mm. a reference point to that. Like all we mm. see is he, Thorwell go back into the bedroom and she's kind of laughing and, and maybe points to him. And then he kind of throws his hands up and storms out. But that was mm. kind of the one interaction that maybe you could tie back into that um, as a True. loose a loose similarity there, but, um, yeah, one of the things that was similar was, uh, slightly different between the, the, uh, story in the movie was that the status of the betting as an indicator of guilt, essentially, I think for Thorwall, I think in the short story, uh, we actually bear witness through Hal's telling of the events of Thorwall actually overturning, uh, you know, disrupting the bedroom, and I think actually removing the bedding or flipping the bedding off of the the frame itself. And then in the movie, we see once that last blind is opened, there's a point where the bedding has all been rolled up, and it looks like the room has been broken down already. So kind of a slight differences there, but kind of both effectively the same thing. So, yeah, Hitchcock made good use of that and kind of kept that in place. Right. Yeah, because that was my favorite part of the short story. That was the linchpin for our boy Hal. He's was debating why he wasn't entering the bedroom and, and going back and forth. And he's like, he must be guilty. It had be murder, to quote the title. Mm-hmm. And then once the window shades are opened and he sees Thorwald bring up the sheets and he has that line, it's in all italics, she wasn't in there, which confirms that, okay, she's definitely dead, like yeah. 100%. No answer is given to who picked up the trunk. I guess in both the short story and the film, we're supposed to believe that it was Thorwald's mistress, mm. I guess. think so. I don't mm-hmm. know. But yeah, that that's an incredible, incredible detail. 
All right. Well, this has been a pretty compelling episode as usual. We've now come to final wrap-up thoughts, final little anecdotes. Lore, I know you've been itching to talk about something. Yeah, so I will start with my final thoughts. Um, We had a little bit of technical difficulties right before the end of this episode. So we took a pause and I actually found an article that I had not found before we started recording the other day. And so I wanted to share a really cool point of how they filmed the reflections of the opposite apartment building through the telephoto lens and you saw that reflection of the whole building so they couldn't get it right to purely sort of film that telephoto lens and see a reflection like it it just wasn't picking up on the film in the way that alfred hitchcock wanted to see it so what they did was they took a photograph of the opposing apartment building they shrunk it down and printed it onto a transparency And then lit that transparency from behind and had Jimmy Stewart point the telephoto lens at an angle so that it would reflect in that lens. That's so neat. I'll post a picture of it too, because this article like specifically focuses on the cinematography and all the shots that they had to set up. And as you were saying too earlier, of the 31 actual apartments, like units that they built, 12 were fully like electric water furnished furnished right, yeah. 12 of 31 like that's an incredible achievement so i'll post some pictures of all of these behind the scenes shots because i was like zooming in on them i was like just enthralled so it's, it's a incredible. really cool article i'll also text you ryan this article because i just texted danny and yeah all of these little tiny things that you would think he makes look so easy are were like 10 hours it'd be like half a day of filming just to set up a single shot and the movie's budget was only a million dollars like that's crazy so just the behind the scenes aspect of this whole movie is so awe-inspiring we didn't talk about the costumes that were designed by edith head Mm. who is like a massive hollywood figure has the little caricature person character in the incredibles based on her oh yeah what's her name in the incredibles i forget edna edna, edna, edna mode exactly edna mode. based yeah. on edith head who designed the costumes for ah. almost all of alfred hitchcock's movies so anyway yeah i can't say enough about how much i love about this movie but i've never really dived into the behind the scenes aspect and i got to do that for this podcast and it, yeah just deepens my appreciation for the whole thing. So those are my final thoughts. (laughs) Yeah. And working in the film space today, I work at a soundstage rear window. Hitchcock pioneered a lot of film techniques that are still being used Mm. today. You know, at the green screen stage, we do a lot of car shoots, car commercials or cars in film. And for the reflections on the windows, they project them in reverse on LED screens, oh. but they still have those uh, moving backgrounds reflected onto the windshields and the, and the windows to make it look like they're actually in a real space. Because in real wow. life, you have reflections. And Hitchcock and his crew, I mean, to do this in the 50s, people really don't realize how difficult some of the techniques that they pioneer. It's like Orson Welles 
in freaking in the 40s, you know, he ended up accidentally creating a bunch of new film techniques because no one said that he couldn't. Like there are all these rules of like, oh, you can't do this, can't do that. And here comes this cocky 26 year old and he just wants to create a cool image and he ends up pioneering new techniques. So Hitchcock wasn't a cocky young buck when he made this, but it's the same concept. Yeah. 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 Certainly. Ryan, final thoughts about the film and short story? Uh, I think the film is is close to perfect. Um, And that's from my very rudimentary understanding of basically everything that makes all the different, you know, uh, disciplines that go into filmmaking. Um, But, you know, trying to be as unbiased as possible, it's an incredible film. Uh, The pacing is really excellent, um, which is something that I think, you know, back in that era may, it just may be different back then. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not used to it or I'm, I'm just uh, more acclimated to the pacing of today's movies and the movies, you know, back to the eighties, but still the pacing for that film is, is spot on. The cinematography is gorgeous. The acting mm-hmm. is, is fantastic. Uh, dialogue is great. And uh, the storyline is rock solid. And then the uh, way that he tells the story through the environment is is excellent as well. I mean, for me, it's a close to perfect film. Um, yeah. So I'd give it, you know, if we're on your scale of four out of four, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I'd, I'd go ahead and give it a, a four star stamp. Um, and I love the story too. The story was, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the few times where my heart rate has gone through the roof actually reading, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ink on paper. I can't remember the last time that really happened, but yeah, uh, it's it's gripping. Uh, Woolrich uh, did a really great job with, uh, I think, what he wanted to do, and then Hitchcock again took that skeleton and flushed it out and and uh, gave us uh, a more, I think, complete story as it pertains to Hitchcock's vision of it. But the story is is great on its own as well. So both of them excellent. Give the movie four out of four. Yeah, t- totally agree. The short story is like a tasty snack. The movie is a full meal. Yeah. Full meal, three course. And yes, we're having dessert. <laughs> <laughs> Laura's done with my antics. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, totally agree. You know, there's a concept that I couldn't put into words until I read it in Woolrich's story. And we've talked about it. It's delayed action. And I think that speaks a lot to the theme of the movie, I guess in society, you know, we can bear witness to a lot of stuff, whether it be atrocities or just conflicts and you as a bystander, as a witness, you can, you can act or you can kind of brush it off, turned a blind eye, or it can take you a while to recognize that something is actually happening. And, you know, I experienced that a lot too, this delayed action. It's like, oh, wow, it's so easy to push something off because it's not normal. Like, like, oh, like the cop, right? Like, am I making sense? Like, it's very easy to say, no, that's not happening. That's not normal. And, you know, because normal always happens. So I really need to credit Woolrich for not coining that term, bringing that term. I think it was a big lesson for me. Picking up on it. Yeah, picking up on it. Yeah. So I'd go three and a half for the short story. 
I would go four for the film. It's an obvious four. Yeah, perfect pacing, sumptuous cinematography, great stars, Grace Kelly, Jimmy Stewart, absolutely kill it, as well as all the supporting characters. It's a classic for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to pin it at 3.5, the, the short story at 3.5 too, just because I have like some feedback for it, but for the movie, it's perfect. So four out of four. So just because I'm comparing the two, it's yeah. three and a half to four, but it's like the Sam character is just a little, yeah, disappointing, a little disappointing, yeah. but yeah. I mean, like you were saying, Ryan, like it gets my heart rate up. Mm. I will probably reread it again, just because we were talking about some of the details and I was like, Oh yeah, I totally forgot about that. So it's definitely worth multiple visits. And I will definitely be watching the movie again as well, because it's one of, I think it might be in my top 10. I know it's in my top 100. I don't mm. remember if it's in my top 10, but I do need to refresh that because Saltburn <laughs> might be up there Whoa. now. <laughs> um, no, no. I've watched a few movies this year that might have crashed the top 10. <laughs> it was funny earlier when we were watching the movie and the ballet dancer scenes came on, I made a comment to Laura about how that was probably porn in the fifties. And <laughs> Laura said, oh, yeah. imagine if you just airdrop salt burn into 1954, <laughs> they, their heads would explode. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, listeners, if you've seen salt burn, uh, you'd understand. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's it. Wow. Saltburn top 10. Wow. What a pivot. It's so good. Oh, I'm it's just good. Obsessed of, I'm just obsessed with it at the moment because we just saw it. But. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't. You know what's not in my top 10? Hmm. John Wick 4. <gasps> okay. I don't know I why it, you but... chose to end the pod on that note. It was I'm just going being, on. Being silly. <laughs> oh, it's just a joke. Oh, it's just a joke. <laughs> well, it may be funny to you, but not to me. Now I'm pissed. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we will return yes. on <laughs> edge of tomorrow <laughs> yeah gosh we need to cover we need to cover yeah, edge of tomorrow based on all you need is kill ryan you'll be on for that in uh, a future season uh hopefully with my brother tim yeah we'll, we'll discuss our people will contact your people well ryan <laughs> thanks again as always you're such a killer guest. Your insight is uh, priceless and valuable, yeah. and it's a blast recording with you. Well, it's it's uh, wonderful working with y'all, and it's it's fun to be working with such incredible hosts as well. So this oh, is shucks. this is like the highlight of of whatever period of the year we fall in on recording these. This is <laughs> such a major highlight when when we do get to work together. So pumped for for the next one and thank you guys so much again it was it was an absolute pleasure of course pleasure is all ours listeners as always thank you as well we'll be back next week with our coverage on the french connection a stellar piece of literature and the best picture winner film uh in this from the 70s uh, directed by William Friedkin, RIP. So we'll see you on the next one. Peace.